Lifestyle choices and environmental factors impact your brain health and the physiology and psychology of your mental health. When you're ready to turn your brain on to get your game on, listen to In Your Head Radio. Now here's your host, Lee Richardson. We have got a great show today. I've got a guest that is an expert in adolescence, and that's something that has always raised questions in my mind. Richard Capriola has been a mental health and addictions counselor for over two decades. He's worked as an addictions counselor at Menninger Clinic in Houston, Texas, where for over a decade, he treated adolescents and adults diagnosed with mental health and substance abuse issues. He's the author of a book, The Addicted Child, A Parent's Guide to Adolescent Substance Abuse. Richard, thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you, Leigh. I really appreciate the opportunity to visit with you today and to talk about uh, adolescent substance abuse, which is a, a very important issue to a lot of families. Well, it is. And, you know, coming from it, I come from everything from the, the brain because the Brain Performance Center and adolescence is such a critical stage for brain development. That's when their their personalities are just starting to emerge and they're starting to learn new skills and kind of to grow into who they're going to be. And it seems like it's they're more adaptable to trying different things. Uh, it's easier for them to, to learn new things. But, you know, doesn't that make them more vulnerable to experimenting with different things? It, it does. The, the, the entire neuroscience approach to addiction is extremely important. And it's one of the reasons why I included a chapter in my book on the neuroscience, because I wanted parents and families to understand that the adolescent brain is a process in development. Uh, our brains continue to develop and mature until we get into our mid-20s. So I think it was very important to help parents understand that their child's brain is in the process of developing critical, critical skills that they will need as adults. And it's very important to protect that developing brain from, from any type of use of alcohol or drugs. And uh, it's, just, it's just critically important that parents understand that their child's brain is a process, in the process of developing. Well, it is on so many different levels. But, you know, when you think about it, the human brain is just made up of the neurons and that are cells. And those cells are protected by the myelin. And that myelin is the insulator. And in teens, the protective properties of the myelin hasn't, they're not even fully developed. Um, and from what I understand, that really impacts the way they receive messages. It, it affects everything involved with the way that they receive messages, how they process information, their ability to have higher order thinking, to make rational decisions. Uh, it, it is so important. And, and it is one of the reasons I think that uh, adolescence is a very vulnerable time for, for addiction. Almost all addiction starts in the adolescent years. And, and a big part of that is because of the vulnerability that comes comes along with the brain just not being fully developed. Well, you know, I'm amazed to know that by 12th grade, about two-thirds of the students have tried alcohol, and about half of the ninth through the 12th grade students report that they, they have used marijuana. I mean, ninth grade is, is a pretty young age. 
It is a young age, and, and, and we're seeing even younger than that in some cases with inhalant use, which typically begins at a very young age, before age 12 and 13. But kids are still attracted to alcohol. They're still attracted to marijuana. The big difference that we're seeing in the last three years is a tremendous surge in vaping, which is where kids will take a substance like uh, marijuana or nicotine and use an instrument that turns it into a vapor and then they inhale it. We have seen a tremendous increase in vaping among teenagers. For example, uh, the number of, of seniors that were vaping marijuana just three years ago was 9%. Today, it's 22%. The wow. Number the number of seniors that were vaping nicotine three years ago was 18%. Today, it's 34%. So there's been a big increase, a tremendous surge in teens who are turning to vaping substances like marijuana and nicotine. Well, do you think that they feel like because they're vaping it that it's not the same thing as smoking it? Absolutely. If you ask them, that's what they will tell you. They will tell you that they think that smoking through a vaping process is less harmful than smoking, uh, say, a cigarette. And to a certain extent, they're correct, because when you smoke a cigarette, you get nicotine and hundreds of other chemicals. When you vape nicotine, you're getting just nicotine. But the problem with that is when you are vaping nicotine, you are getting higher concentrations of nicotine than what you would get in a cigarette. So the downside is that it becomes it becomes uh, addictive much more quickly when you're vaping the substance. Well, I know I've had a client, a, a young client, tell me that the vaping, well, it's just flavoring. You know, I'm like, no. Do you know what the actual ingredients are? Doesn't it contain toxic chemicals? And they look at me with that deer in the headlights look like, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, and they really don't know. Uh, they don't know that when smoking cigarettes, uh, you know, they're getting nicotine and hundreds of other uh, uh, chemicals as well. Uh, they really do have the perception that uh, vaping uh, is a much safer approach when in reality, um, it, it really isn't. Well, I think, you know, we, we've learned a lot about vaping in the last year and the, the dangers of it. Do you think that that will have, do you think that they're edu they educate themselves enough that that will impact the usage? No, I, I don't. I don't. Because I don't either. I, I don't think it has any impact on them any more than, you know, telling kids that, um, you know, that uh, smoking marijuana is harmful for them. They, they don't believe that either. And telling them it's illegal doesn't uh, doesn't have any impact on them. The one thing that I that I have found in working with uh, teenagers uh, that does have an impact on them is the neuroscience approach. Um, they're not interested in hearing about how it's illegal. They're not interested in hearing about if they continue to abuse substances, their grades might drop, they might, they might not graduate, or they may not get into college or get a job. They don't believe any of that. But what they are interested in and which captures their attention is the neuroscience approach. When I can talk to them about how a substance like marijuana works in their brain, how it affects their motivation and their short-term memory and the processing speed of the brain, that captures their attention. So you mentioned marijuana. Does marijuana have a, and I believe it does, it has a different impact than a stimulant does on the brain? 
Yes, it does. It, it affects different areas of the brain. What I have seen with uh, teenagers that I have worked with who have been using a lot of marijuana multiple times a day, and, and most of these kids were, were very bright. Their, their, uh, their, uh, their IQ scores were in the superior range to above average to superior. So they're very bright children. But when we would get the psychological reports back, we would see that, th that the processing speed of their brain was below average and their short-term memory was impaired. Now, was all of this a result of marijuana use? Probably not. But was marijuana contributing to it? Yes, probably so. Um, but definitely, uh, when we look at marijuana and its effect on the adolescent brain, we can see some changes going on in there. Well, you know, here's a question for you, because I know that stimulants and depressants, they can they have an impact on the neurotransmitters, you know, the chemicals that carry the messages between the brain. Does marijuana impact the neurotransmitters? All drugs affect neurotransmitters, whether it's marijuana or it's cocaine or it's LSD. They all eventually get to the brain and affect the neurotransmitters in the brain, uh, depending on which drug, of course, and, and the makeup of the child. Uh, every situation is different, but the brain is, is, is a very intricate, complicated organ, and the neurotransmitters uh, work in, in a very delicate way, so anytime we're disrupting that balance in that process of those neuro, neurotransmitters working by interjecting drugs, we run the risk not only of the, of the person becoming addicted or, or, or dependent on a substance, we run the risk of, of really doing some damage to some critical areas of the brain in terms of processing. Well, and I know dopamine is so involved in addiction because, you know, you do something and, oh, you like it. And so the brain starts kicking out that dopamine. And then you go from liking to do it to wanting to do it. And then you go from wanting to do it to needing it. And those little brain cells, they get confused, you know. They, they get very confused. And that dopamine, you just keep kicking it out and kicking it out. And I mean, anytime you laugh or you feel good, that's your dopamine at work. And it's when that brain's overbalanced with dopamine, it, it really messes up the brain. That's absolutely right. In fact, that is such a critical issue uh, of dopamine that that I that I address that issue of dopamine in the chapter that deals with the neuroscience of addiction, and and I explain that all drugs, you know, what they have in common is the ability to produce a huge surge of dopamine in the brain. And as you noted, dopamine is a pleasure chemical. It's what gives us the pleasure when we go out to dinner or we go to a movie. The the, the problem is that with drugs, they cause a huge surge of dopamine in the brain, much more than the brain was equipped to handle. And that gives the teenager or the adult that tremendous sense of pleasure that they're getting from seeking a, a drug. And once they lock onto that pleasure, then it becomes a process where they want to repeat it over and over and over again. Well, you get that dopamine going, you get that lack of myelination in the neurons, and the pleasure that they're feeling must be so intense, much more than an adult would feel. 
It is. And when you combine that pleasure with the fact that so many kids and adults, too, are turning to a substance to medicate an underlying psychological or psychiatric issue, they're experiencing what I call an intolerable thought or feeling or memory. And and, and like anyone else, teenagers don't like sitting with intolerable thoughts and feelings and memories. So they will seek a relief. And when they find that relief in a substance, say marijuana or alcohol, and they experience that relief, then it, then it almost becomes uh, a, a process where they will repeat getting that relief through the substance. So, you know, you mentioned that the as adolescents that start to abuse drugs, they eventually do become more dependent upon drugs. And, you know, have you seen when I say adolescence, I mean like around 11, 12. Have you seen 11 and 12-year-olds that are addicted? No, I haven't. Uh, I've seen 11 and 12 years uh, who have abused a substance. Um, uh, but, but generally, I have seen the more serious use of substances in the high school population. It may start out earlier, but uh, it then progresses so that by the time they get into high school, uh, for some kids, it has become a compulsive behavior. Well, you know, and I think one of the things that, that I have had Actually, someone has told me it was so easy. My mom and dad have all these little bottles of pills in the bathroom. You know, they have pain pills and then they have something that they have something for ADHD, you know, Adderall or something. And it's it's just right there in front of them. And, you know, as well as I do, that the brain is not capable of making a well thought out decision at that young age. No, it's not. They just don't have the capacity to, to, to make those decisions. They make impulsive decisions. And, and one of the issues that I do address in my book for parents is, is if you have any type of medications or alcohol in your house, you need to secure that from your child because uh, they will raid the medicine cabinet. They will raid the alcohol cabinet. So if you do have any of these, even, even over-the-counter uh, drugs in your house, you need to secure those from your child and make sure that they don't have easy access to them. Well, and I think in the last year, 18 months, the stress level for everyone, every age has just increased. And I think that that, you know, that would make people more prone to binge drinking. Um, and the younger the person, the more, the more immediate they want that gratification. And they've got the amygdala in the brain making those emotional decisions. So, is binge drinking something that you've seen in your experience? I haven't seen uh, a lot of it in my experience, but but you know the the research would tell us that binge drinking is the way that most uh, most uh, adolescents and and college kids consume their alcohol. A large percentage of the alcohol consumed by teenagers and by college kids is through the process of what we call binge drinking, where they will consume a lot of alcohol in a very short period of time. So someone that does binge drinking on a regular basis, I mean, that's got to have a huge cognitive effect on the brain. Absolutely. Uh, any, anyone who gets uh, uh, compulsively using alcohol or compulsively using any, any, any illicit drug is really doing major damage to their brain. 
Can you give me some examples? Like, I mean, I think that they certainly lose the ability to control their impulses. They lose their ability to control impulses. Uh, they lose their ability to rationally make decisions and to, and to, and to process decision-making. Uh, it's almost as if the rational thinking brain has given way to the more compulsive pleasure-seeking part of the brain. That reward pathway, as we call it in the brain, where drugs do a lot of their work, that seems to override the more rational prefrontal cortex of the brain, which would be there to sort of regulate our behavior and lead us to making uh, decisions. In my book, I refer to the uh, prefrontal cortex as the stop system and, and the uh, reward pathway is the go system. So that go system in our brain is telling us to go and seek the pleasure, go and seek the drug. The, the more rational prefrontal cortex stop system is the one that sort of puts the brakes on that. And in a person who is not addicted, those two systems work pretty well. Uh, and we end up hopefully making good decisions. But in the addicted brain, those two systems don't communicate very well. It's as if the uh, reward pathway, that, 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 that system that tells us to go and seek the drug, overrides the part of the brain that tells us, no, we shouldn't do that. Well, over the years, I've worked with a, a few teenagers that have really had addiction problems. And the one thing that I've noticed in all of them is they do not have the ability to plan or think ahead. No, they don't plan. They don't think ahead. And, and, and part of that is the, uh, depending on the age of, of, the, of the teenager, they may not have yet developed that capacity on a consistent basis to make those rational decisions. They become much more impulsive. They become much more pleasure-seeking, which then makes them vulnerable uh, to seeking out and using a substance like alcohol or marijuana. Well, when you think about the long term, there's a risk involved with any drug that you use. What's the long term risk of permanently impaired brain development? Well, the one thing that uh, that I note in my book is that our brains have a remarkable capacity to heal themselves so that once we stop assaulting them with alcohol or drugs and we uh, and we give our brain time to recover, we can see some pretty remarkable changes in the brain over time. Now, whether the brain will return to uh, what it was before we started using alcohol or drugs, um, that's different for every person. But the one thing that seems constant is that um, our brains do have a remarkable capacity to heal themselves. And with, and with abstinence from alcohol and drugs and, and treatment and recovery time, our brains can show some pretty remarkable uh, improvements over time. Well, thank you so much for making that point, because certainly at the Brain Performance Center, we use neurofeedback, neuromodulation, create neuroplasticity in the brain. And it is amazing. You know, once you can calm that brain down, how much better everything, life in general, really does become. And the brain does have the ability to heal and even, you know, regenerate new tissues. It's, so thank you for making that point. 
it's a very important point, and I wanted to communicate that in my book to parents. I wanted to give them a sense of hope that even if they're involved with a child who who may be uh, abusing alcohol or abusing drugs and, and dependent upon them and maybe has been doing so for months or even years, that there is hope for their child to recover and for the brain to recover. Well, you know, you mentioned the parents, and I think that is such at that age, that is the most important connection that that those children have is with their parents. But in many times, I mean, I've talked with parents that their their kids have faced different problems. And, you know, one of the most, to me, the most basic thing to do is just really communicate, sit down and talk. And many times it's the hardest thing to do. I am so glad that you brought that up because it is so critical um, to, 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 to the communication between parent and child. I'm often asked, well, if I, decide, if I discover my child is using a substance, what's the first thing I, I should do? And the first thing that they should do is have a discussion with their child. Now, we're, we're very good at, uh, at listening to people's words so that when we're talking to somebody, we do a pretty good job of listening to their words, but, but we don't always do such a good job at listening to their feelings behind the words. So I encourage parents to uh, develop the communication skills that we all can learn from, that we all can benefit from, and we can all improve upon. And that is to learn the skill of listening, not only to your child's words, but listening to the feelings beneath those words. When you can do that, uh, then you will begin to have a better communication with your child, develop the trust that needs to be there. And if your child is using a substance, you probably will have a better conversation with them when you start to listen, not just to their words, but to the feelings behind those words. Because it's the feelings that's driving the abuse of the substance. In many cases, it is, um, and, 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 it, and in many cases, uh, children are using a drug to medicate an underlying psychological issue that as a parent you may not have been aware of. Many of the children, many of the teenagers that I worked with who were using marijuana, when I asked them to help me understand why they were using marijuana, the number one answer that came back was, it helps me with my anxiety calms the brain down. It calms the brain down, and that's the relief that they're seeking when they feel intense anxiety. Well, you know, it, I think it's very hard. At, I, I'm a parent, and I've had two boys, and, you know, when you're, when you're trying to have thoughtful conversation around a subject that is very emotional, both for them, at the child, and the parent, I found it on a personal level hard to keep my emotions in check. And, and instead of, you know, I get, we tend to get caught up in our emotions. And that's where I think we don't listen the way that you described. And it's very hard to do because if you're dealing with a child who's using alcohol or is using drug, many parents, you know, they, they, they may become angry, they may become frustrated, they may get, begin to feel uh, uh, as if, you know, they missed the warning signs. So they're dealing with their own emotions too, at the same time trying to deal with their child and listen to them. So it becomes a very intense situation. It does. And, and it's hard. 
But I think that, you know, your point on the neuroscience, and that's something that parents really need to understand, that that brain will not be fully developed until the mid to late 20s. And that risk-taking behavior, that's that's partially in line with where their brain development is. And that's the, the breaks and the, the go that you talked about. Yes, and it's important that if they want to talk to their child about the dangers of, of using a substance, it, it's very important that they use the neuroscience as an approach because that's more likely to capture the attention of their child. Well, and I think that the brain, everybody is so much more aware of what the brain does. And people are more aware of mental health today than they were five years ago and, and 10 years ago. And I think that's the beginning of having an understanding. You know, it's okay to not be okay. It's okay to feel like that you need to do something to, to re reduce your stress. But it's not necessarily okay to turn to an outside substance. And that's the hard part. That is the hard part. And, and, and you're absolutely right. We need to communicate that message that it's okay to feel the way that you feel. Uh, but, but there are skills that you can learn to deal with that. So that if you're using marijuana to, to medicate your anxiety, there are other ways that, and other skills that you can learn that will be able to allow you to effectively uh, manage that anxiety without turning to a substance, which would have a very negative effect on your brain. Well, you know, and at that age, they just, they don't understand that really the right thing to do is just to pause and think about it. And then what other options do you have? And then choose one. Just don't go for the, well, I would just feel better if I smoked a joint or drank a beer. <laughs> That's a very hard concept to teach to a teenager because they are all about instant gratification. And, and if they've started using a substance, they then have experienced that instant gratification. And to try to get them to pull away from something that gives them that instant relief to something that requires a, a, a lot of work, whether it's meditation or some other type of a process, is, is a very difficult sell to make to a teenager. Well, honestly, Richard, I find it a very difficult sell to make to some adults. <laughs> so, <laughs> it is, it is, it is. <laughs> I mean, it, it truly is, you know, because it's, we all get caught up in the moment. And, you know, I, I tell my clients, visualize a stop sign and just stop and evaluate what's going on. And then just say, okay, what, what can I do? What are my options? And then pick one preferably a favorable one, and then go with it. But I mean, it's, I can't imagine a teenager doing it when I have a hard time getting adults of all ages and myself included. There are times that I don't, you know, that I get caught up in the moment and I go straight to what I think is the answer. Yeah, I think we're built that way. I think we're built to, to, to get away from intolerable thoughts and feelings and emotions and go for uh, instant relief um, and, and and, and to try and teach an adult, uh, much less an adolescent, to slow down and practice the skills that will work is, is a big challenge. Oh, it is. And, and I think it's something that we all struggle with. But, you know, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, I'd like to talk a little bit more about the drug effects on the brain. Because I think some of us just think, oh, you know, it, it's just temporary. It, it's not lasting. And we don't really think about 
what could it do in the long run? And how much vulnerable does that leave us as an adult if we were using drugs as an adolescent? So there's a lot that we can talk about, and I'm sure a lot more advice that you can give to parents on how to deal with substance abuse in adolescence. We'll be back after these messages. Have you heard? The pages of American Patchwork and Quilting magazine come to life on our new weekly online radio show, American Patchwork and Quilting. Join Pat Sloan, our blogging and quilt designer host, as she talks about the latest trends, ideas, and inspirations. Her guests include quilt pattern designers, authors, quilt shop owners, and our editors, all quilters just like you. Call in with your questions. Get quilting tips from industry experts. Learn about free patterns. Hear behind-the-scenes stories from our magazines, American Patchwork and Quilting, Quilt Sampler, and Quilts and More. Get the scoop on free stuff and find out more about the best independent quilt shops in North America. To listen to a live show, tune in Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern. Just log on to allpeoplequilt.com slash radio. To hear past shows, go to iTunes and search for American Patchwork and Quilting Radio. We hope you'll join us because we know that quilting changes everything. Have you ever walked into a room on a mission to get something and totally forgot what you went in there for? I do it all the time, which makes me feel like a total sieve head, as the Brits would say. Some might blame it on old age, but a recent study reported in the Quarterly Journal of Experimental Psychology suggests the simple act of passing through a doorway causes memory lapses. It appears the brain regards a doorway as an event boundary and effectively files away whatever you were thinking about as soon as you step through. What's a word for the feeling your thoughts are being stolen? Nucleptia. So, what's the solution? Try carrying an object that reminds you of the task. For example, if you go into another room to get a pair of scissors, carry the object you want to cut. It's words you never heard. I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words-you-never-heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. We're back. Now here is your host, Lee Richardson. We're back. And before we left, we were talking about how parents can interact with their kids and and create a, a better understanding. And I think the hardest thing, the biggest challenge is understanding the power of peer influence. It is a very powerful influence, and in many cases, it's the gateway to kids being introduced to drugs when they are around other kids who are using a substance like marijuana or drinking alcohol or using any illicit substance. um, It becomes a very, very powerful influence on those kids, and many times it is so powerful that even if a child wants to try and resist trying a drug, that peer pressure, that peer influence will come together and and a child over time will give into it and that often is is the beginning of a process which leads them down the road to using more and more of the substance we know and what can parents do i mean at that age they could i would think that they could still be involved in the peer selection who who they bring to their house what friends they have come over 
to a certain extent, they can control some of it. Certainly, they can control who has access to their house. But the reality is no parent has total control over their child or their child's behavior or the child's interactions with other kids. It might happen in the school. It might happen in the classroom. It might happen in the playground. So no child is totally protected. We have protective environments, but no child is is, is protected from coming under the influence of either alcohol or drugs. No, and you make a really, really good point. What happens may or may not happen in the home. It can happen anywhere. It can happen anywhere and most likely will happen anywhere. And that's why I stress with parents in my book, you need to know what the warning signs are. You need to know what to look for. I have sat across from I don't know how many parents in, when I was working at Menninger Clinic, and I would go through the history of their child's using a substance like alcohol or marijuana or some other illicit substance when I was doing the assessment. And when I got done explaining their child's history, they would look at me and they would say, I had no idea this was going on. Or if they did suspect their child was using a substance, they would say to me, well, I sort of suspected something was going on, but I didn't know it was this bad. And then they start to feel guilty. How did I miss the warning signs? What did I do wrong? So the first thing parents need to do is learn those warning signs. So share some with us. Well, in my book, I have warning signs on alcohol. I have warning signs on marijuana. I have warning signs on eating disorders and warning signs on self-injury because eating disorders and self-injury can sometimes accompany a child using alcohol and drugs. So parents need to be aware of those warning signs. But as a general rule, what I advise parents to do is pay attention to the changes you see in your child. Don't assume that those changes are just normal adolescent development. They may very well be, but they may also be indicators of something going on underneath the surface. So pay attention to the changes you see in your child. For example, if your child's grades start to slip, you might have a child who was earning very good grades and now the grades are declining. You might have a child who used to participate in sports, no longer wants to participate in sports. You may have a child who was very social and outgoing, now becomes more quiet and introverted and isolating. You may have a child who introduced you to their friends. You knew who their friends were. You knew the family of their friends now becomes very secretive of who their friends are. These are all changes that you need to pay attention to. And the more of these changes you see, the more likely that there's something going on underneath the surface. And you need to get a comprehensive assessment to figure out what's going on. When you say comprehensive, comprehensive assessment, exactly what do you mean? Well, I need I, what I what I'm referring to is more than just an addictions assessment. That's what I was doing at Menninger. I was doing addictions assessment and treatment. But certainly, you need an addictions assessment to determine if your child has what we call a substance use disorder and whether it's mild, moderate, or severe. That's what an addictions assessment will tell you, along with information on what drugs your 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 child has been using, how often they've been using, and the extent that they've been using. But that's just one assessment. 
assessment. My book identifies other assessments that you need to put together a comprehensive assessment. For example, you will need a psychological assessment or a neuropsychological assessment. That's going to uncover uh, changes in your child's brain that might be there. It's going to uncover any personality issues that might be developing. So you need a good psychological uh, or neuropsychological evaluation to accompany the addictions assessment. And there are a couple of other uh, assessments that I recommend in the book as well. That all leads to what we call a comprehensive diagnosis and then uh, a treatment plan that will advise you as a parent as to what the next step should be. So, you know, I think oftentimes we, if, if we know our child is misusing a substance abuse, we don't take it quite that far. We think, oh, well, it's just the effect of the drug, you know, on the brain. And we don't really take it as far as we need to. So I think that is a really valid point. Um, and I think it's it, for many parents, they just want to deal with the immediate problem of a child abusing a substance. To them, that's the major problem. And yes, it is a major problem, but there may be some underlying issues that you are unaware of that is pushing your child to use that substance. So as a parent, you want to get a comprehensive picture, a complete picture of everything that's going on with your child. If you have a child, for example, that's smoking marijuana to alleviate uh, anxiety or maybe depression that you may not be aware of, and all you treat is the marijuana use, you don't treat the anxiety, the chance chances of that child staying away from uh, marijuana for a long period of time is slim. Well, or if they go away from marijuana, if they turn to something else. They may do that too. They'll find another substances uh, to, to, to medicate with, or they may take up uh, some other type of behavior um, that, that would be compulsive. Uh, I dealt with a number of young girls, teenage girls who were smoking marijuana, but also were self-harming themselves. Uh, so they had they had two coping skills. If I took away the marijuana, which I could do when they were in the hospital, the self-injury might increase. Wow. Either way, I think they're trying to feel something different than what they're feeling. They're looking for that relief from what from what is an intolerable thought or feeling or memory. They just don't want to have that, which which we can all understand. Even as adults, we don't like having those intolerable feelings either. The difference is in the adolescent brain, they are more geared to immediate relief. And if they get uh, introduced to a substance like marijuana or alcohol that gives them that immediate relief, they're likely to continue to rely on it. Well, let's talk a little bit more about the drug effects on the brain, because I would think in the adolescence that, you know, the, the substance abuse could impact your learning capabilities. It affects your motivation. It affects your short-term memory. It affects the processing speed of their brain. So if you're sitting in a classroom and, you're, and the processing speed of your brain is curtailed because of substance use, you may, you may not be able to capture everything that's going on. And if your short-term memory is impaired, you may not be able to hold that information within your brain so that when it comes time to take a test, 
you may not do as well as you normally would because those processes in the brain have been compromised by the drug. So those critical brain processes of short-term memory and processing speed of the brain could be compromised because of the drugs. And what I wonder is if it impacts, I worked with someone that was an athlete and the only thing that I said that ever got attention about substance abuse was think about your response speed. Think of, you know, think about how you're slowing that down. That got more conversation than anything else I said, because it does affect, it affects you physically as well as mentally. It does. And, 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 and being able to relate that substance use to something that is important to that child, as you did with, with the athlete, uh, is, is a gateway to getting their attention. It's a gateway to, to getting them to understand that what's going on in their brain and what's going on with the, with the interaction of the drugs or the alcohol in the brain has effects on them. It may affect their motivation. Uh, I, I've met a lot of kids who would tell me that smoking marijuana want to just sap the motivation out of them. Uh, but definitely when you can relate the effects to something that, that is important to the child, you have a much better chance of reaching them. Well, I'm, it makes me very happy to know that it's the neuroscience message that you share that gets their attention. Um, because that takes, you know, that takes away the emotion. It takes away, well, it's your fault. Well, it's my parents' fault. It makes it scientific. And I think that makes it easier to be open and honest about. It does. And I, I, and I wish our schools would begin to use a neuroscience approach uh, at a very early age in elementary school and then reinforce it throughout high school. Just the basic neuroscience of how the brain works and what alcohol and drugs do to the brain, because that's what will capture kids' attention. That might be the gateway to getting them to seriously look at this issue. So you mentioned in your book, you talk about the different effects that different drugs have, alcohol versus marijuana. But are there, is there a common thread? The common thread is that all of these drugs cause huge surges of dopamine in the brain, which is the pleasure chemical, which then reinforces an adolescent's use of a substance as they want to seek that pleasure. So that's the common element among all drugs, is their ability to increase large amounts of that pleasure-seeking chemical called dopamine in the brain. How these drugs interact and change the brain is very dependent on each person's brain. And then if you start introducing multiple drugs for a child that might be using not just marijuana, but might be experimenting with other drugs or alcohol, then you have the combined effect of these substances entering the brain, which has the potential of causing more damage. Well, you know, we talked a little bit about dopamine, but there's other neurotransmitters. I mean, serotonin, that helps you go to sleep, um, it affects your appetite, all neurotransmitters are affected by the by the substance abuse. 
It is. It's serotonin, uh, which can re regulate a number of different functions. Um, it, it, it affects the processing speed of the brain and how quickly our brain is just clicking along. It affects areas of the brain that affect coordination. That's why it can be very dangerous to, 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 to do certain things like skateboard or swim or drive a vehicle. Um, so it affects all of the critical areas of the brain. Our brain is 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 the, the the critical component that controls just about everything we do well we all know that that glutamate affects our memory and our thinking abilities so it when you look at it from a, that neuroscience perspective it makes a lot of sense it makes a lot of sense, uh, but it is very rarely addressed in drug education courses uh, in our schools, uh, and, and parents uh, don't really have not had the benefit of learning about it either. Either, and that's why if parents will take the time to learn a little bit about the neuroscience, the basics, it may be the opening to to the discussion that they can have with their child that will capture their child's attention. Well, I think parents are going to have to because drugs are so, and sub different substances are so available right now, and the kids don't see any risk involved at all. There are two things that I think are contributing to what we're seeing in, in adolescent substance abuse. One is availability. These kids do not have a problem getting a hold of substances. We ask seniors, for example, how is how easy is it for you to get marijuana? Almost 80% of them told us it's very easy to get marijuana if they want it. We asked them, how easy is it for you to get LSD? 30% said it's very easy to get LSD. We asked them, how easy is it to get alcohol? Over 80% said, if I want to get alcohol, it's no problem. It's easy to do. So these substances are readily available to kids. Then we look, then we ask them, well, okay, it's it's easy for you to find these substances. How harmful do you think they are? And that's where we see kids only 30%, only 30% of seniors tell us that smoking regular marijuana smoking marijuana regularly is harmful. Only 30% believe it's harmful. We ask them, well, okay, how, how harmful do you think it is having one or two drinks nearly every day? And only 24% of seniors tell us it's a great risk. So when you combine easy availability and a perception that these drugs are not harmful, you have a perfect situation for what we're seeing uh, in terms of kids abusing alcohol and drugs. So, you know, that, that makes the prevention part really hard. It makes it very hard because we're competing against those two major issues, the availability and the harmfulness. Now, we may not be able to do much about the availability, but we can do a lot about helping children understand the harmfulness so that, so that they don't begin to see these drugs as not being harmful. We might be, not be able to do much about the availability, but there's a lot that we can do through education and the neuroscience of addiction to help these children begin to see these substances as being very harmful to their brain. Well, you know, and that, you know, it all starts with your lifestyle and the lifestyle choices that you make. And a lot of them that we make, how much time we spend on social media, um, that really does not support healthy brain development. 
No, uh, neither does a lot of compulsive behaviors that we're seeing. And, uh, and, and this pandemic has also had a tremendous impact on the mental health of children throughout our country. And I think we're just scratching the surface to see that. You know, the CDC has recently reported that since the pandemic began, there's been a 24% increase in emergency room visits by grade school children. And there's been a 30% increase uh, for teenagers who are urgently need, in need of some type of mental health care. So we're just beginning to scratch the surface. And, and I'm concerned that in order to address these mental health uh, issues that are going on with our kids uh, and with adults, that more and more of them may turn to a substance to relieve the mental health struggles that they're going through as a result of the pandemic. Those are frightening numbers that you shared. Um, uh, it, it's frightening, and I think uh, we're just scratching the surface. And uh, and as we as we move past this pandemic, and children start to reintegrate back into the traditional classroom, that might produce a different set of stressors that uh, that we'll have to deal with, and they will have to deal with. Mm. I mean, if we look at it on a even on an adult level, we know that the alcohol sales went up greatly during the pandemic, um, and we practice, you know, we model behavior that we've seen modeled. So. Yes, we do. And, and when children see their parents perhaps starting to consume more alcohol or doing things that uh, that maybe legally they can do as adults, but but children shouldn't be doing that, that model behavior almost becomes a standard for them. And if, I mean, if it's good for my mom and my dad, it's probably good for me. I mean, I can see how that train of thought can go through an adolescent's brain. It's the same line of thought that says, well, if it's illegal, if it's, if it's legal for adults, it can't be that bad. Yeah, good point. <laughs> Very <laughs> But good it can point. be. The, the problem is in the adolescent brain, that might be the way they reason things, but their brain just doesn't have the capacity to understand, okay, well, it may be legal for the adult brain, uh, but but it may, it may be illegal for, for us as kids. But what they don't understand is there's a big difference between the adult brain and the adolescent brain. Absolutely. The adult brain has at least got that prefrontal cortex fully defined That's and, right. <laughs> and they don't. <laughs> and that makes a big difference in their decision making ability. Oh, absolutely. If you don't have a prefrontal cortex, all you can use is that amygdala. And all that amygdala does is it reacts to emotions. So huge, huge difference. And you become a pleasure seeking adolescent. Which, yes, you do. <laughs> so, you know, so being, when we come to being preventative as parents, there's only so much that we can do. Uh, as a society as a whole, are there changes that, that could be made that would help this? The, 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 the one change that I think can make the biggest difference is what I alluded to earlier, and that's in the education system, where we move away from uh, an education system that basically is a just say no 
type of curriculum, and we moved to a neuroscience approach to curriculum and to drug abuse and to adolescent substance abuse. And we begin that neuroscience education in the elementary grades, and then we reinforce it every single year through high school because it's the neuroscience approach that is likely to capture these kids' attention, and it's likely to impress upon them the importance of protecting their brain. If we can make that change, we might be able to, to, to curb this, uh, what we're seeing uh, in, in adolescent substance abuse. So let's try to take that down to maybe four or five points um, that people, listeners could remember and just try to, to integrate into their daily life. Well, I think, first of all, um, learn as much as you can about the adolescent brain and the effect of alcohol and drugs on the adolescent brain. Uh, learning the warning signs. So if you're a parent, you're not caught off guard. You need to know what the warning signs are. You need to know what to look for. And, and also, if you're confronted with this issue, as frightening as it can be, please try to understand that there is hope, that there is treatment, and that your child and you as a family can move through this successfully. Well, you know, are warning signs different in different in different adolescents? No, the warning signs are the warning signs. Uh, you you may uh, you may experience them differently. They may act out differently. But I'll go back to what I said earlier. You need to pay attention to the changes that you see in your child, and investigate them. In many cases, they may just be adolescent acting out. They may be very temporary. But the more changes you see, the more likelihood that there's something going on underneath the surface. Wow, just using the power of observation can be very strong. That's right. You know your child. You know your child's behavior. You know when that behavior is changing, and you know the degree uh, to, to which it is changing. Uh, but, but many times as a parent, uh, we, we don't often zero in on that and follow through to, to investigate, well, what, what's really going on here? Why am I seeing these changes and what's happening uh, underneath the surface? And, and, and in fairness, many parents aren't, aren't able to draw those distinctions. And that's why the assessments are so important so that professionals can be brought into the mix and can help you sort this out. At what point would you say you need to bring a professional into the mix? When you discover your child is using a substance or you suspect your child is using a substance, the earlier you can get the assessments, the earlier you can intervene. So it's never too early. It's never too early, that's correct. Well, you know, tell us just a little bit about your book before we end the show, because it sounds like there's a lot of information in that book that parents will find very useful. Thank you. The, the, the book is only about 100 pages. Uh, I did not want to load it down with a lot of uh, technical language, a lot of research, a lot of science. I wanted it to be uh, a resource that a parent could use, could read very quickly and walk away with the thought that, OK, I understand this now. I've got this a little bit better. So the chapters are short. Uh, there's a chapter on a review of substances that are out there. There 
there are chapters to help parents understand what these drugs are. What is marijuana? What is cocaine? What is methamphetamine? Just some basic education. There's a chapter on the neuroscience. Uh, there's a chapter on uh, process disorders, which are things like uh, eating disorders, self-injury, uh, gaming, things like that. And then there are chapters on uh, what does a good treatment program look like? What is a good? What are the alternatives? What what kind of treatment is available out there? Everything from outpatient to inpatient to residential treatment is explained. And then there's a chapter on resources. So all of this is packed into a little over a hundred pages that a parent can read very quickly, keep as a resource, and, and have it available if they need it. But the main goal is to help parents get a better understanding of adolescent substance abuse so that you're not a parent who later looks back and says, how did I miss these signs? So where can that book be found? The book is available on Amazon. Uh, it's called The Addicted Child, A Parent's Guide to Adolescent Substance Abuse. You can also go to the book's website, which is helptheaddictedchild.com. And there you can find uh, sample chapters. You can read endorsements. You can read reviews. Uh, and you can uh, order the book. It'll take you directly to Amazon where you can order the book. It's available in Kindle as well as paperback. Wow. Thank you so much, Richard, for being with us today. You have shared really valuable information. And there are things, it, it's information that everyone that has an adolescent needs to be aware of. And I think that we think that, well, it's just so complicated. But to be able to pick up a 100-page book and read it in an hour or two and have that many answers, I think that is a fabulous contribution that you've made. Truly appreciate the book, and I truly appreciate you being with me on the show today. Thank you, Leigh. Appreciate it. On behalf of Lee Richardson and the Brain Performance Center, we want to thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more episodes like this, visit us on iTunes, Google Play, Toginet, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Spotify,